so um, we'll talk a little bit about pleasure uh, to kind of set the stage for the next three days of explorations. And so pleasure has kind of an interesting connotation because a lot of people feel that pleasure is kind of a frivolous thing to engage with um, or, you know, hedonistic, and it's just for people who have the privilege to do so. And um, as a matter of fact, you know, a lot of people feel that pleasure is only reserved for the sexual domain. And, uh, you know, it's kind of something that one shouldn't talk about. But, of course, uh, pleasure is nothing else but the aliveness uh, that we feel in the body, the, the pleasant or, or open aliveness that we feel in the body, or a feeling of well-being. And sometimes pleasure is simply the absence of pain. You know? Sometimes we can't feel uh, much other than you know, pain and tension, and then the moment when there isn't pain is extremely pleasurable. So... Um, there is a much wider definition to pleasure than uh, what is commonly perceived as this, uh, you know, wildly orgasmic uh, thing that we're all supposed to feel at all times. So uh, a lot of people will, uh, you know, only go for the sexual pleasure, and then there's people who go and say that there's a difference between sensual pleasure and sexual pleasure. And we could slice it that way. I mean, these, of course, are all uh, just delineations for the sake of figuring things out in our heads. Uh, because, of course, sensual and, and sexual pleasure, well, where's the dividing line, right? When does it go from, from just the sensations of the senses to um, the sexual enlivening? And what is sexual enlivening is then always the question. Because for some people, sexual enlivening is when their uh, sex organs are alive. And for some people, it is a full body consideration right, of all different kinds. So there is really no clear delineation between uh, the enlivening of the senses and the sexual aspect and everything in between. So we're going to just play in the realm of um, well-being, aliveness, and pleasure, regardless of um, how you want to slice it or through what lens you want to uh, perceive it. That's entirely up to you and um, for you to explore, essentially. So one of the things that you, many of you have heard me say, uh, pleasure is our birthright, right? And so pleasure is our birthright not because... Um, of the privilege that we have in experiencing it because, you know, some people don't have a lot of pleasure. There's war-torn areas in the world where that's not necessarily uh, the case. So it's not one of those, well, you know, we're entitled to have pleasure um, that I mean by that. What I mean by that is that pleasure is one of the things that has kept human beings alive. And um, very clearly so, before, long before we had the cognitive ability and the knowledge that we have now, pleasure was one of the things and one of the main things that has driven human beings to procreate. And that is what creates survival. And so um, often when people say, well, I feel guilty about having pleasure, um, it's so frivolous, the answer there is uh, it's actually not. It's one of the most basic 
foundational human uh, movements towards survival and procreation. There's another aspect to pleasure that's not just the sexual aspect where uh, one feels driven to combine with another human for procreation or you know, sheer enjoyment, but pleasure is also an aspect of sensory perception that has kept humans alive. It was long before there was a complicated um, mental gymnastics uh, millions of years ago, how humans became humans and then survived was by engaging with the senses. If you had trouble in any of your senses, you had trouble surviving. You couldn't see why you didn't get very far in the Stone Ages or b before then, right? Um, you couldn't smell. You probably eventually ate something because also when you can smell, you can properly taste, right? So you can smell or you can taste. You're probably going to eat things that are not uh, good and hence die. And um, taste particularly is what uh, allows humans to notice, you know, what's off, what's edible, how to eat it, all of those kind of things. Of course, without hearing, you're going to get eaten very fast if you're out there in the desert or in, you know, in a cave somewhere. And so the engagement with the five senses is our fundamental way of surviving in the world. And then beyond surviving in the world, thriving, because of course the exaltation of those uh, of the sensory engagement then leads to all the things that are extra, right? Good food, um, wonderful smells, both in nature and made, you think, you know, perfumes or essential oils, um, music, art, uh, the engagement with beauty and life lies in the senses. And um, both in the very fundamental survival aspect and in the artistic aspect, the um, lighting up of the body and the engagement of the body is the sign that the senses are fully engaged and are um, you know, heightened and, and um, what would the word be? Refined. So that's what I mean with pleasures, our birthright. It is a fundamental aspect of human experience long before we come to the sexual part. And then, of course, in the sexual realm, um, pleasure is also something that we're built for, uh, not only so we can procreate, even though that's where it starts, but because within the realms of pleasure, there's vast exploration, both as to um, stamina, endurance, how much you can feel, um, how much of your entire body can be enlivened, um, how can you actually conduct the energies in your body and um, expand your ability to conduct energies in the body. And there the interesting thing is, of course, that um, your pleasure threshold and your pain threshold correspond. Right? If you can't let yourself feel a lot of, um, you know, the just unpleasantness of life, you're also capping the pleasant aspects. You're just having a very narrow band of experience all around. And, and the same is true with anger and all other kinds of emotions. Right? If you have a wide range, the wide range goes into the pleasure realm and it also goes into the not-so-pleasurable realm. 
And so when we play with pleasure, we're also playing with our general capacity to meet life and engage with life and all aspects of life as they occur. And very often there's, you know, as many, if not more options to engage with the, you know, the lows as with the highs, but that's both available within capacity for pleasure and capacity for all feeling. And so um, when we look at pleasure, the two ways that we can look at it is, of course, from the outside in and from the inside out. Outside in is fairly clear cut. You have a partner, the partner touches you in a way that gives you pleasure. You don't have a partner or you supplement your partner or you enjoy yourself with a big fat vibrator, external pressure, which of course, and external given pleasure, which of course um, goes from the outside in. Or the other option then is to start uncovering the ever more subtle and multi-layered dimensions of pleasure that are always already in your body and learning how to unpack those so you're completely independent of the external stimulus and the person or the machine or the whatever. Right? So barriers to pleasure are kind of obvious, uh, one of which, of course, is anything that gives you stress. Right? Stress is a huge barrier to pleasure. You could say, you know, stress causes disembodiment, disembodiment causes less uh, connection to, to the signals of the body. Uh, stress also causes survival mechanism, which means um, that's not pleasure first, right? That's, that's fight or flight in the, in the first layer. So the more stress, the less pleasure. There is some... Um, Mechanisms, though, where people who get very stressed then go towards trying to get pleasure to override certain things. We'll talk about that separately. But we're talking about the naturally unfolding internal to external pleasure, not the external pleasure that people use to relieve their internal conflict or stress. And then the next one is overwhelm. And overwhelm is, of course, connected to stress, but I'm more talking about overload in the sense that it's too loud, there's too much going on, uh, too much sound, too much computer, too much phone, too much text. So kind of the, the external noise that's so big that the internal voice and signals can't be heard. And then... The next one is trauma. And trauma, I'm, I'm uh, phrasing here very widely. Um, anything from uh, physical accidents that you know, cause blockage in your body to um, uh, sexual you know, transgressions against you, physical stuff, uh, bad relationships, breakups, divorces, um, business failures. I mean, everything that causes that kind of trauma response in the body that, that locks the body down and that causes triggering of certain loops and patterns. And then uh, two other ones to kind of consider as we are working with this um, is shame and conditioning. 
those are big ones, of course. And so shame and, and, and conditioning can be um, body-centered within yourself or from the outside body-centered, meaning you have shame about some part of your body or your body in general. They can be cultural, they can be religious, they can also be familial in the way you were brought up. And then another one that's always good to look at is um, the need to control or you know, hold it together, which of course is a big barrier to um, <coughs> unbridled pleasure. Bless you. So the last thing I want to say, and then I'll take some questions if there are any uh, or comments, is that uh, one of the things we're going to work with uh, in these next few days is our pleasure threshold. So we have, most of us have an upper limit on pleasure for whatever reasons, any of the disgust uh, in any combination of, you know, the stress, the overwhelm, the trauma, the shame, the conditioning, the control, the hold on things. So and a combination of that produces kind of an upper limit we can allow ourselves this much pleasure and then it kind of down-regulates, like this air conditioner. You know, you get to reach a certain heat and then it goes And that happens with pleasure in the body. And this is sexual pleasure or just sensual aliveness. And um, there's reasons for that within the barriers, but there's also... Um, kind of a, a, a lack of muscle in the nervous system is one way of saying it, right? And, and that's the important piece that um, you'll hear me talk about quite a bit this coming, these coming days. Pleasure is a discipline, right? And that is something that most people do not actually want to consider, that pleasure is a discipline like anything that you want to fully explore. Uh, nobody would uh, expect to be a concert pianist, uh, an accomplished concert pianist, without the discipline of practice. And, but somehow it's considered that pleasure will just happen. And if it doesn't, then there's something wrong with you, or you don't have it, or you're faulty, or your partner's faulty, or your vibrator is faulty. You know? <laughs> Something's wrong. Um, but pleasure is an active discipline where your nervous system has to be conditioned and cultivated and opened and relaxed and, um, you know, worked with in an ongoing way so you're capable of perceiving all the things that happen in your body and so that you're capable of actually maintaining and holding that level of pleasure. Most people get to a certain point and then they pop out even with food or something that's incredibly good, right? It's like, I can barely stand it. It's just too good. You, you hear this all the time. Um, and of course, you also hear or, hear or see this in the, in the sexual domain where there's a certain moment where you just, you have, you've had enough right? and it has to stop for no other reason than your system uh, isn't capable of handling it for whatever reason. So we'll be looking at 
pleasure as an active discipline, and we'll also look at uh, the you know different building blocks to pleasure. So it's something that you can reliably engage with as a means to deepening your you know relationship with life itself, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> well, one way to look at that is. Uh, and this is something that most people do not want to actually face, is it's always been like this. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This isn't some new thing. It's just that you couldn't actually feel it, but it was still happening in your body. Yeah. yeah. But they, and you, the reason you're reloading them, they were as unpleasant then that they are now. It's just you didn't deal with them. And so now you have a bit of backlog on them. Eventually, as you work through the backlog and as you learn that that's always happening, right? it's a very unpleasant thing to consider that things are affecting us as fully as they do when you allow yourself to feel them, right? Uh, which is it's like a little bit like, oh, God, ignorance was bliss, right? <laughs> um, there is something to be said about being somewhat numb in a dentist chair, you know. Um, but the, but the, the next step is to go, well, that has always happened. That happens to everyone. They, they're just not dealing with it, and hence it gets stuck in the body. And, of course, some people, they deal with it other ways, right? They just take an enormous amount of painkillers. And Interestingly enough, this is not to say one should take painkillers <laughs> because that, that leads down all kinds of bad ways. But interestingly enough, if you have some acute trauma of any kind, emotional, physical, whatever, they've experimented with giving people an enormous amount of opiates right after, and that actually uh, facilitates the body's self-release. Interestingly enough, the same with a fairly high dose of pot. They've also done that, marijuana. Um, that where, but uh, where that essentially takes your head out of the game and it, it, it allows the body to process. But of course, once you know how to actually process trauma, you don't have to do drugs anymore. You can essentially just know that when you go to the dentist, it will be traumatic. And you can take arnica and stuff like that. I take usually huge amounts of, uh, you know, arnica, both for the trauma and the actual dental trauma. And then you need to work it out of your body. And it's an unpleasant thing in the sense that you become aware of how much life affects your body. And it makes you think about things a little bit more, uh, you know, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it, it has to debilitate you. You just have to take that into account. And that's actually proper self-care. Not the, uh, oh, we must all indulge in whatever coconut oil massages. That's one layer of, of self-care. But that's more in the indulgent aspect of it, more or less. The other one is to just go, I go to the I'm going to the dentist. I can't immediately schedule a meeting after that. I need to go home and I need to do the things and I need to let my body shake and rest a bit and do something against the anesthetic and then I'm fully functioning again. And it's a bit inconvenient, right? And you don't always have to do it. You can press through, but you, you're always paying the price. And you're either paying the price right then and there or you're paying the price later. But you're always paying the price in some way or another.
So, you know, there's that. And then, of course, the other thing um, is that the dentist is not that example because that's a that's an you know that's an actual thing. Somebody's doing something to your mouth, and you you know not. But um, when you go to the grocery store, that can also be rather unpleasant, right? That's one of those things where you can actually discipline your attention. The the Dentist is not, that's an actual physical trauma on your body, right? But when you go to the grocery store, because people go, well, I'm so sensitized, I can no longer engage with people. And that's not, um, that's not something to indulge. Because there you can learn how to just keep your attention very in and not spread it out and not pick up everybody's stuff and not... Um, you know, kind of gluttonously suck up everybody's bad energy, so to speak. Um, you can just go, you know, and you put on your invisibility cloak um, and you go about your day and, and, and then you can just deal with it and, you know, you don't have to dramatize it afterwards. One should not have to do two hours of nonlinear to detox <laughs> from, a, from a grocery store visit, right? <laughs> but... For a dentist visit, you might have to do something. Yeah. So there's, there's a bit of a difference between being too precious of a snowflake mm -hmm. on one end right, or, and um, actually dealing with things. Uh, and the, the one thing that I want to say, this is not for you necessarily, but just in general, one of the areas where people start getting really funny around that is that Often when people really start sensitizing to both pleasure and also just other people's influences, uh, casual sex becomes a lot harder, mm -hmm. right? Because you have to kind of go, oh, yeah. you know, ah, you know, I really did not need that to feel that in my body. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes a bit inconvenient. And that lies somewhere between the dentist <laughs> and the grocery store. <laughs> where you have to have enough wherewithal to know that maybe you're doing certain things to your body for which you have to pay later. Mm -hmm. And on the other end, you can't get so precious that you can't engage with other humans intimately anymore. So there's a making good, healthy choices according to your, you know, the, your sensitivities, but not getting so precious that uh, you, know, you can't touch another human anymore. So... Yeah, who knows? Supposedly, cavemen discovered mushrooms and had a, you know, several millennia-long party. You know, so, <laughs> so who knows? But I, you know, it, it's a, it's that that's a very, it's, it is a very multi-layered question because it is certainly true even for us that if we spend, you know, a few weeks away from the rigors of our lives. And we get to just be humans as the way you know humans were meant to be or were built, which is essentially um, move a lot, um, eat when you're hungry, sleep when you're tired, have sex whenever you feel like it all right to, and, and have sex whenever you feel like it then depends on biorhythms, hormonal rhythms, mm -hmm. stars, moon, sun, whatever right so age. 
uh, energy level. So, uh, of course, if we, you know, I mean, cavemen didn't have it that great because they were under constant threat of, you know, survival. And but it was pretty much that simple. You ate, you hunted, you ate, you slept, you had sex, you did ritual. Right? There was a pretty strong um, element of ceremonial ritual based on the fact that you were hunting and gathering and, you know, and so on and so on. So it becomes a fairly, and there's very few indigenous cultures left, unfortunately, right, where you can still see those rhythms, but those rhythms exist in humans and when we're left to our own uh, device without, you know, having to do the things we need to do, that's what happens naturally, fairly quickly. And then, you know, depending on, um, people's dispositions, there is a fairly strong mystical bend where people then also want to celebrate and dance and meditate and, and then that leads back to the pleasure and you know food for the not only for nourishment but also for feasting and ritual and and, and all of that. And all of that's still within us and we do do that but kind of in a fairly um, I don't know how to say it perfunctory facsimile of the real thing, right? Um, I mean, we could make every meal into a, into a ritual feast, but we don't because who has time in a 30-minute lunch break, right? And so on and so on. Uh, but that's, that, that's kind of more what happens when you leave people you know, to do the thing that they want to do. So from that viewpoint, I would say that probably in those days, there wasn't much um, that needed work. Now, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't remember those days, um, you know. But when you look at it, it doesn't look like much work is needed even when we are left to be like that, even for a couple of weeks, even after a couple of weeks of not doing so much, that kicks in pretty heavily. But because we don't have those kind of lives, and also we are a lot more multi-layered because there's a lot more required of us than just eat, hunt, sleep, fuck, and sleep again, right? And then pray a bit and dance a bit. Um, we do have to uh, train our nervous systems to keep those impulses alive. Mm -hmm. And so when I say pleasure is a discipline, it's kind of an interesting thing because you have to essentially discipline yourself to relax yourself. You have to discipline yourself to feel. You have to discipline yourself to sensitize and not just numb over by eating bad food and you know stuffing your face with donuts and whatever. <laughs> Some super sugary stuff, right? Doughy sugary stuff. Those are all kind of substitutes for the real thing. And so the discipline lies in, uh, on one end, uh, stepping back so the body can do the things it needs to do. And then the discipline also has a ritual component because what I'm talking about here as well is the use of pleasure and sexuality within the context of let's call it spirituality. It's a dicey word because it's so muddled. But for the, in, within the service of something greater than yourself, where you point your activity as a human to the benefit of all beings and not just you, right? And within the context of that, 
uh, pleasure has a, has a place or bliss or however you want to call it, ananda, right? Um, you know, ananda isn't just the bliss of, eh, or, you know, the new agey thing. It's like a full-bodied aliveness um, that then benefits something much greater than ourselves. So that's the kind of discipline I'm talking about that goes into the realm of the, um, you know, yeah, the, the God realm, so to speak, however you define God for yourself. Did that answer all the different uh, questions? No, I really feel, yeah. It is. Yeah. You, you you could say that, or or a, a relaxation back to, which is a rewilding. Yeah, mm -hmm. it certainly is, and um, it's essentially the realization that the toll you put on your body when you don't do that is something you'll have to pay for by ill health or ill mental health, or you know. Less, lack of productivity, lack of creativity, lack of personal connection, um, you, you know, on and on and on and on. So it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting moment in time where one has to consider the things that should happen naturally as something that you have to pursue uh, via instruction and discipline and practice and workshops and all of that. Yeah. So... But alas, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> One cacao sip at a time. <laughs>
but it might not. And then what? Right? You want to kind of give up your life uh, till that happens again magically and somebody comes along. So the inquiry into what's, what's doable and what's good for yourself, I think, takes precedence. At that point, it's also easier to pull apart what's your partner and what's lack or discontent on your end, right? Because if you're dependent on a partner to do you, so to speak, whatever that means, right, enliven you pleasurably, give you sexual satisfaction, then um, that need or craving for that uh, muddles the view on who they are, positively as well as negatively. Right? We put up with people who we never would put up with if they weren't sexually interesting or exciting. And on the other hand, um, you know, we're, we're less prone to deal with people who we don't find exciting, even though they might have incredible wealth of depth and, and connection for us. Right? So it, it's an important piece to thread that apart and, and pull it apart and be able to supply the basics for yourself so you don't come from a place of need uh, or demand. And then at that point, you can see that person a bit more clearly and um, determine what place they have in your life. And as you well know, because you work in that field, it's not uncommon that people's relationships, long-term romantic relationships, change dramatically. And sometimes several times over if people have the fortitude to stay together. <laughs> More than ever before in, in civilized history, do you have options? Right? I mean, people always took those options, but they were uh, societally way less um, you know, condoned or nobody is stoning you on the street by taking a lover, right? Or branding a, a big A on your forehead or chest or, you know, who's seen the scarlet letter here? Yeah. So she gets branded as an adulteress, you know, so yeah. So that no longer happens. And you're not going to lose your job or you're standing in the community. People might gossip and stuff like that. But, but you, you also, you know, you have your own car and you can go places and all those kind of things that many of the women before us didn't have. You had to kind of sneak behind the woodshed of the gardener uh, and tie your horse up somewhere else and stuff like that. Right? <laughs> yes, those were, the those were the good old days. Yes. Back then you had like your groom, your horse groom, and now it's the pool boy, but you know... The, the, the options are a lot more available, but I'm not only talking that, right? I mean, I, I'm not saying that this is where you want to go. I'm just saying yeah. in general, there's people who do, you know, do um, internal massages for a living. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can explore your sexuality. Yeah, I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying it is available now, meaning our engagement with our sexuality, uh, with ourselves and other people, is a lot more um, out there than it mm. used to be. Mm. And also, the uh, traditional roles of 
how it is in the family and who makes the money and who manages it and all of that have changed a lot for most people. Right? And you make your own living, right? Yeah. yeah. And so hence, you're under no obligation to have a regular relationship. Well, that's, that's for the two of you to, to put up then, right? Meaning just because he wants it doesn't necessarily mean it goes that way. Uh, on one end, right, and on the other end, uh, on the other end, just because you want to be sexually satisfied doesn't necessarily mean that will happen, mm -hmm. right? Because that's that's the other thing. Um, unfortunately, the men who know how to do that and how really really get you are few and far in between, and most of the guys who can do it the way you want it are not the guys you would want to be with, right? That's the unfortunate thing. I said to somebody the other day, for women, unfortunately, it's usually that the cock that's available is not the cock you want. That's the unfortunate truth, right? The guys who you can fuck, either because they're single or they're in open relationships or they're between partners, are not the guys you want for the most part. That's a very, very rough, this is one of those very unfair things, right? Um, that's not to say that, that you can't have a long-term, you know, that you can find people to have good long-term relationships with, but that's not what you need. What you need is a supplementation. No, no, it's not crazy at all. <laughs> you're, you're talking about something that almost every woman I have ever met is considering in some form or another, right? At some point in their relationship. But again, to, to, I, you know, I don't want to piss on your parade, so to speak. The thing is, the kind of man who would be husband number two isn't the kind of man you want that has, as husband number two. Because you have, to, you have to really consider that you have nine out of ten with one man. Or eight, fine, eight. Yeah, yeah. But it's still more than half, right? So what that means is that husband number two is only good in the three out of ten, let's say, right? Um, that your existing husband isn't fulfilling. So, but let's just, let's just make it two out of 10, right? So that, yeah. So two out of 10, what are the two things out of 10 that this second husband would have to fulfill? Sex, really good sex. Well, I'll stop you right there. Why on earth, why on earth would a man open himself emotionally, intimately to you when you're not available? Yeah, but that's a pretty fucked up man and you don't want them, right? The guy who goes, oh, maybe one day she'll be as intimate with me as I'm with her, right? You have to, you have to be really, really brutally honest that what you would be able to give man number two would be limited. And if man number two is willing to take that, well, not great for a number of reasons. That's not to say that you wouldn't find somebody short-term who can fill in some of those blanks and things like that, but it's probably a better option to develop a really rich inner sexual life, right? where you engage with yourself in ways um, 
that no person can really uh, engage with and kind of plumb the depths, pun intended, um, of your own sexual exploration with yourself, right? Go places you've never gone. Uh, do things with yourself that you don't, you don't even know right now where you can kind of go, oh, oh, I have a free evening. I'm going to take myself here and I'm going to explore this and really kind of go to town uh, with yourself in a way that you're you know, you're, you're entertained within yourself regardless of what's happening out there. Mm. And that can potentially lead to a different kind of engagement with someone who is on a similar wavelength, let's say, and also uh, capable of kind of providing for himself and, uh, but willing to kind of explore in all the wild and wonderful ways that one can explore in that intersection of the adventurous, the sexual, and the spiritual. And that's probably a better option than trying to find husband number two. It's, it's a tough one. And I don't have the answers for you, other than to say I would really dive into, the, in, into your own exploration because there are areas of sexual experience with yourself that are so rich that it might put these things a little bit in perspective. Yeah. It's not to say that you won't have those uh, desires and yearnings, but it puts it in a different perspective. <laughs>